Right, what's cracking, lovely people? Welcome back to the Big Feed Up HQ podcast. The podcast that generally focuses on nutrition, movement, and outdoor experiences. Thank you for downloading and listening in. Now, 33 Fuel and I have been working together for about three years to bring you this pod. And 33 Fuel produce natural and powerful sports nutrition products. Use Matt 10 at checkout for 10% off your first order. Also, they're crowdfunding at the moment, lovely people. So the crowdfunding will let you own a part of 33 Fuel from £10 to £10,000. And they're looking for people to register their interest in the next two weeks. Details are in the show notes and capital at risk. Also, Attack the Day, support the show and Attack the Day are a London-based lifestyle and clothing brand run by keen triathletes and mountaineers Sam and Rory. Use Matt20 at checkout for 20% off your order. Oh, brilliant deal. Anyway, if you like the show, please share it with someone. Ultimately, it's the only way the show will grow. And please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud to get the latest episode into your feed. And leave me a, a comment and a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be mega. It helps more people find the show. Okay. I'm really chuffed to bring back Michael Gleason to the show. Now, Michael is an emeritus professor of exercise biochemistry at Loughborough University. He retired in 2016 after 40 years of research and teaching, mostly related to diet, metabolism, health and performance of athletes. Unbelievable. God, he's been teaching for more years than I've been alive. Today, he has kindly agreed to speak to me about one of his latest books, Beating Type 2 Diabetes. So I hope you enjoy this discussion, lovely people. Let's get into things. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be on again. Look, it's been 10 months since our first episode together and um, look, that was really well received. But if we've got a few more listeners to the show this time round or... Um, yeah, people maybe didn't manage to catch that episode. It would just be good to have a, a little bit of a background into yourself, Mike, and then how, how you've been getting on, you know, over the last 10 months since we spoke. Oh, thanks, Matt. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a retired university professor, having spent about 40 years in academia doing research mostly related to diet, exercise, metabolism, the impact that exercise has on immunity, and doing things trying to find out the best ways to promote both the health and the performance of, of athletes. And now I've, I've retired, so I've spent the last four or five years decided to write a few books in the public health area, because I think we could learn a lot from what I've learned in sports science, applying good nutrition and exercise practices to athletes to optimise their health and performance and apply that to the to the general public, because one of the major things we're going to talk about indeed today, type 2 diabetes, is essentially in most cases a self-inflicted disease that's brought about by poor lifestyle behaviours. And you can do things to prevent it. So that first book I wrote, Eat, Move, Sleep, Repeat, was all about how to prevent getting chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, hypertension, etc. Uh, and now I've also written this other book called Beating Type 2 Diabetes for those who actually get diagnosed with the condition and want to know much more about it and importantly how they can get rid of it. 
Excellent, excellent. And people can um, find find that first book you mentioned in the show notes. They'll be able to find the episode we discussed. Um, and I think that's brilliant. You know, like you said, it's a roadmap to prevention and, and there's so many interesting sections and it's, it's quite easy to kind of filter through and, and find the things that might resonate with you. Um, and then, like you said today, yeah, really keen to lift the lid um, a little bit on, on this concept of beating type 2 diabetes, because I think, you know, it's it's so well known now. I think the majority of people listening will have probably uh, been aware of, uh, you know, a family member or a friend or someone they work with or um, anything like that, really. So I think it would just be brilliant to to maybe just, uh, yeah, clarify the difference between uh, type 2 diabetes that we're going to focus on today and type 1 diabetes just to kind of, yeah, lay the foundations for the listener, if that's okay, Mike. Yeah, sure. Um, Type 1 diabetes generally affects about maybe 5% of the total number of people who get diagnosed with diabetes uh, in the UK and worldwide. Uh, And it's caused essentially by damage to the beta cells of the pancreas, which are specialised cells which produce the hormone insulin. Insulin promotes the uptake of glucose by the tissues, by your muscles, by your adipose tissue, by your liver, etc. And when you don't produce insulin for whatever reason, then you fail to take up that glucose. So it just rises in the blood when you digest it from the, the gut, from the carbs you've eaten in your diet. Um, now, type 1 diabetes is essentially caused by damage to the beta cells. And it can be caused either by a, a genetic defect, which is kind of relatively rare. Uh, that would occur from birth, obviously. And uh, it can also occur at an early age, under the age of three or four usually, uh, by an autoimmune type disease where your immune system mistakenly attacks those cells. Perhaps you've had some sort of viral infection or whatever that the cause isn't exactly known. But yeah, your your cells get wiped out, the ones that produce insulin by your immune system. So essentially you have pretty much usually a complete failure of insulin production. That means you have low blood insulin levels, virtually zero, and therefore you have high blood glucose. And it's that that causes or initiates all the nasty symptoms you can get that can develop with diabetes as the years go by. You can also get it type what this type 1 diabetes a little later in life as well, which perhaps most people are not aware of. But if you have something like uh, gallstones develop in your gallbladder in your liver, they can sometimes break up and pass down into your pancreatic duct and they actually then damage the pancreas. You get some uh, tissue damage there that can also knock out some of your beta cell function. Uh, That can be reversed in some cases, but it depends how much damage is actually done. And that can happen, you know, in your 50s or 60s or something like that. Type 2 diabetes is, is different in that initially, at least, insulin production is not low. In fact, it's more of your, it's it's your tissues becoming insensitive to the actual actions of insulin on them. So insulin is still around, but the tissues no longer respond in a normal way. So because your insulin is not effective, 
glucose didn't, doesn't get taken up from the blood, you end, end up with high blood glucose levels. Now your pancreas tries to compensate for this by producing more and more insulin. But the problem is that is that the beta cells can burn out trying to do that, trying to cope with that very high blood glucose. And uh, you get beta cell failure occurring then. And you end up again with this situation where you have low blood insulin and high blood glucose. And essentially then the symptoms and the, uh, the consequences of that type 2 diabetes become pretty much exactly the same as they do in type 1 diabetes. So there are some differences in how it comes about, type 1 and type 2, but at the end of the day, the health consequences essentially end up being pretty much the same. Mm. So the one we're focusing on today, um, in essence, like you said, it's that it's that dysregulation of the system, um, potentially like o- overuse or overproduction, or you know, if people are trying to imagine that in their minds, it's something where uh, things are just a lot more sensitive um, around around the tissues and and especially places where we're looking to store blood sugar. You know, the tanks in our bodies, muscles, uh, liver, things like that. Um, so I think that is, you know, it's a brilliant description. It's obviously something you've been researching and, 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 and teaching and, and, and going through for a long period of time. So obviously it makes sense when you break it down like that, Mike. And I think how this is obviously such a massive undertaking and I'm keen to dig into a few sections. But um, how, how did you first get into writing a book like this? I know you mentioned that you... You think there's a lot of lessons to be learned in in the public health side of things and because of your performance background and and the way you kind of pulled things apart there you thought you know you could probably create some roadmaps for um people who don't obviously work and 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 uh, perform in sports um and and yeah they can obviously be really really helpful health related tools so you know it sits on my desk every day um, but yeah, maybe just let the listeners know a little bit about about how you got into um, putting it all together. Well, actually, for me, it began as a, a personal journey because about 10 years ago, around about the age of 55, I was actually diagnosed with having type 2 diabetes. At the time, I felt quite embarrassed as a, a lecturer who talks a lot about exercise and diet be one of the people who succumbed to this lifestyle disease. But uh, being a university professor or a lecturer means you uh, do a lot of uh, sitting down at your desk, writing grants, writing papers, preparing lectures, and then going up, standing up for an hour and doing a, you know, a lecture. Other than that, you might be supervising people in the laboratory. So it's a pretty much sedentary lifestyle with quite long hours and also doing work occasionally at, at weekends and getting up at all hours of the morning to start the healthier students doing their, doing their experiments and that. So, yeah, I think that's what essentially caused it for me, just a little bit of weight gain, probably drinking a little bit too much alcohol to cope with the stress as well. And, uh, yeah, I got about up to balloon down my normal weight when I was a young man was about 67 kilos, something like that. And I ballooned up to about 80 kilos not hugely overweight, but obviously enough to actually initiate this development of type 2 diabetes. So I got diagnosed with it. I can explain, if you like, how, 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 that, how that happens. And uh, 
And then I decided, well, I started researching into that, but I thought, well, I don't want to have this. I could see what the consequences were if you didn't do anything about it. So I thought, I'll try and see if I can research how you can get rid of this thing. Mm. And very clearly, the, the main thing that was causing it was being overweight. So essentially, if you lose that excess weight that you have, get back down to where you should be, you know, uh, and... Uh, yeah, it works. You can get rid of it. I got rid of it. And so I wanted to explain that to people and also explain the whole process. Because when I was looking for th- information on the internet, of course, places like that and other books that people have written, you can find a lot about the management of type 2 diabetes and maybe a little bit about its causes. Not so much about how to get rid of it, at least not in those days, 10 years ago. So. I thought it'd be useful to have a one-stop resource where people who are diagnosed with it can find out about, you know, how they were diagnosed with it, what does that mean, what sort of other tests are they going to have as a consequence of this, how is it going to be monitored, how is it going to be managed, and how can it be treated other than through drugs uh, by actually losing weight. Mm. Uh, So I, I examined all that and then put this book together to try and cover pretty much all aspects of type 2 diabetes from its diagnosis to actually successfully getting rid of it. Yeah, excellent. Like huge undertaking. But like you said, you, you're very passionate about um, just giving clarity to other people because obviously you'd been through it and, and you'd had the tools to um, support yourself. And, and like you said, every every individual is different. And obviously listening to the uh, the weight gain of uh, of your situation and li- and like you said to other people that that might not feel like a lot but to your to your body and to the way things were with you you know you um put some steps into place and changed it and and it supported your metabolic health which is yeah which is important to hear i think too because obviously um it just gives it gives people not only a bit of context into um why you put it together and, and spent so much time researching and just um collating all, all of this information but um it's quite a personal story as well so there's a, there's a lot more substance there because obviously there's so yeah. it's, it's a disease that creeps up on you mm-hmm. you know that there are not obvious symptoms i i, I didn't have any symptoms so mm-hmm. i didn't know i was going to be diagnosed type 2 diabetic mm-hmm. that, that only happened when i started having an annual uh, blood test um I got diagnosed with having hypertension, high blood pressure, but my mother had that from a fairly early age, and I think that's a, a genetic issue as much as anything else. Some people are more susceptible to high blood pressure than others. Mm. As a consequence, I started having an annual blood test, and one of the things they measure are things like your your, your blood glucose levels and things like this. And uh, um, yeah, it's uh, it was a uh, it came was quite a shock actually. I mean, some people do get some symptoms and, you know, the most common ones are often feeling sort of very thirsty, frequently wanting to go to the toilet. You can get some tingling in the hands and feet. Uh, you can feel a bit tired, fatigued, but, you know, I just thought that was part of the normal job, really, you know, working long hours and, uh, and that, you know, and it, you can make you feel more hungry than usual. I haven't particularly noticed that, but uh, yeah, so I didn't really have any of those symptoms. So it, it came as quite a shock to me when the uh, the diabetic nurse said, uh, by the way, you've, uh, you look like you've, you've developed type 2 diabetes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's an important conversation because um, like I, I work with um, people who are in the kind of pre-diabetic spectrum on a daily basis now, and it's just important to humanise things because they've had a measurement, and it, you know, it'd be keen in a minute to to maybe go through a, a couple of different ones so the listeners can understand them. But then they're, you know, from the lifestyle side of things, I'm I'm there to support them with some of the things we might talk about: nutrition, exercise, stress management, and then they're working alongside their GP and. Yeah, I think it's it's a hard one because people are labelled then as pre-diabetic or type two diabetic, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's important to understand that's still you know that's still a person it doesn't mean it defines them, and you can you can change things like you've done. So maybe you know maybe just to round this little section off, uh, what did you get done? Did you get uh, was it a, a fasted glucose test or did you do the the longer form uh, three month blood sugar test? What 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 was the measurement you were doing? Um, with your with your annual checkup to first find things out. Well, what, what they actually used to diagnose type two diabetes, and again, this was on something I was particularly familiar with before. I thought it was probably just measuring, uh, you know, the fasted blood glucose concentration and all that. Although that can be used, what they actually use is something called a level of uh, glycated hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is that respiratory pigment in your red blood cells that carries oxygen. And when your blood glucose levels get too high on a, a chronic long-term basis, you get more glucose molecules actually sticking to the hemoglobin. There's always some there. There's always a certain level of this glycated hemoglobin, sometimes abbreviated as HB1AC, is what you see on the, the, the form when they show you the results. Um, but above a certain level, you get diagnosed as either pre-diabetic or actually having type 2 uh, diabetes. So that's the thing that's used as the sort of the gold standard for the, uh, the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. If you're not having a regular blood test uh, like I've had for the last sort of 10 years, then uh, it, can all, it can also be detected by the presence of glucose in the urine and that can be done virtually instantaneously you can get these little test strips you can probably buy buy your own ones from the chemist if you want to test yourself so just after uh, when you wake up in the morning just have a pee into a receptacle uh, and then dip one of those test sticks in and it's a color-coded thing it stays colorless it's okay you've got zero glucose in your urine which is what the case should be and if it's if you've got glucose present, it changes colour, and the depth of colour change reflects the uh, the level of the glucose that you have in the urine. If you've got any glucose in your urine, you're almost certainly diabetic. But then they'll want that to confirm that with this uh, uh, glycated hemoglobin blood test afterwards. There are other tests that can be done, but those are usually the ones of choice. Mm-hmm. Great. No. That's really clear, Mike. And um, yeah, thanks for taking us through that. And um, yeah, it's not the one, the the one in the urine isn't something that I actually consider as much. So I think that's really interesting. And like you said, if people are empowered after hearing something like this and, and, and you know, want to test and not guess, then there's obviously different avenues to be able to do that. So look, that's brilliant. So if we take that kind of 30,000 foot view, you know, back when you were um, when when you understood uh, the levels and things like that, and obviously um, fast forward to having this roadmap that you've written in terms of the book. If we if we dive into things, and I think if we you know 
we're obviously not going to keep the listeners here all day. You and I are extremely passionate about this, but I think we could segment it in, into uh, movement, couldn't we? Exercise and and the nutrition side. I know there's so much to cover, but then at least that gives something um, for someone to latch onto, doesn't it? Because um, we know how powerful weight loss is. Um, and it's not particularly easy for so many people, but if we know that that's a, a really decent regulator, maybe the master regulator, if we can say that in terms of supporting our metabolic health to rectify these kind of things. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's probably a prominent place to start in terms of uh, when, you, when you found out about it. And like you said, you had quite a sedentary lifestyle in terms of becoming, um, you know, uh, just not not moving as much and and um, sitting and, and and when you're lecturing and things um, and then you've obviously I've got to know you a little bit more now and and you're really into your longer walks and getting out in nature you know maybe if we start with the movement side of things how can that how can that support it um, and obviously people just making simple steps on a daily basis to start moving forward yeah of course we don't there are many reasons why exercise is good for your health in general and everybody should aim to be active if you know their the, the job and everything allows that um, but in terms of type 2 diabetes exercise can be useful for two main reasons one is it helps you burn fat so you can actually help to you know reduce your excess body fat and get that down and it's that that's the main driver of type 2 diabetes. I mean, by far the biggest risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes is being overweight. You know, that, that outweighs, pardon the pun, all of the other risk factors that you can have, including things like age and uh, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, um, burning fat is one. And the other is that exercise actually increases your insulin sensitivity because uh, exercise actually promotes glucose uptake actually completely independently of insulin. When your muscle fibers contract and you're doing exercise with your arms or your legs, it promotes the uptake of glucose via a, a calcium medi- mediated intracellular mechanism. So doing exercise helps you helps to re- reduce your blood glucose if you're a type 2 diabetic. And it increases the insulin sensitivity of your tissues, particularly your skeletal muscle. So it helps that way. Even just a single acute bout of exercise increases insulin sensitivity for something like 24 to 48 hours afterwards. If you do exercise on a regular basis, in other words, three or four times or more per week, you get a further increase in insulin sensitivity. So it's helping to reverse your diabetes in that sense and also helping you uh, burn fat, you know, as long as you have it as part of a, you know, a calorie controlled diet and don't just eat more calories to compensate for the extra energy you're burning when you're, when you're doing your, your exercise. Mm. And the beauty of it is the sort of exercise you need to do to burn fat best is light to moderate intensity aerobic exercise. Things like walking, brisk walking in particular, or jogging, you can manage that, or cycling, or swimming, all of those sorts of activities, even things like dancing, you know, uh, lots of people can do and enjoy, um, all will burn fat much more effectively than trying to do these high intensity 
uh, workouts. We see hear so much about doing this high-intensity interval exercise. While it's a good way of getting health benefits without spending too much time during exercise, that's the beauty of it, it's not really that good for fat burning because you're, you're actually bur- burning mostly carbohydrate when you're doing that, not your fat stores. Mm. Yeah, I think that's such an important point is that um, fuel partitioning, isn't it? And it's something where I actually read books that you know you had written when I was an undergrad back in god 2009 2010 and it was a a complete light bulb moment for me not going too far into it but like you said if you're able if you're able to hold a conversation and you're doing something that's aerobic and it doesn't have to be running it could be uh, walking or uh, swimming or like more and more people are now in lockdown are getting out on the bike Um, and we know Mike from obviously a ton of work you've done too that's that's uh, going to be there's going to be less uh, stress to the immune system so you might be able to do that more often so you're going to be able to stay well um, be consistent with the exercise you might not be as sore and then ultimately if you're at that intensity and you're starting to increase the duration yes people might have to find the time um, but that that potentially is going to uh, support more uh, burning burning fat and um, you know muscle and, and liver glycogen whereas the hip side of things yes it's good for time um, but it's it's going to be quite hard it's, it, it could compromise the immune system and also um, you know are you going to be burning fat yes you're going to be burning calories but in that short period of time we know that that necessarily isn't the case um, and the good thing is about your book there's there's some really decent recommendations and I and I quite like how you look at things weekly so if someone listening to this what are you doing in a week you know cons- consider different types of activity um, I know you've put a little bit in about resistance training too so getting the muscles under tension which will also increase that uh, sensitivity like you've discussed before so that's a nice way to consider it isn't it planning exercise on a weekly basis thinking about aerobic thinking about a bit of resistance um so i think that's a, that's one of my favorite parts of the book actually how how you're breaking down potentially putting a bit of an exercise program together yeah aerobic exercise is good and it's something you should aim to do you know five or more days a week if you can uh, but uh, yeah, two or three resistance training sessions each week. And you don't have to go to a gym to do that. I'm talking about you can, you can lift a so sort of a, a, a barbell thing that you can buy in the shops, about four kilo, kilo weight, something like that. It's a reasonable thing for, for exercise in the arms. But you can get just as good an exercise just by doing things like press-ups. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, do a few minutes of those. Uh, a few squats and things like that. We're using your own body weight to uh, to exercise your your legs in a sort of resistance type type manner. Uh, these things are all good for actually maintaining your muscle mass, which is as you get older, of course, you naturally uh, lose some of that. Uh, it does also help to increase your insulin sensitivity, just as the aerobic exercise does. And uh, if you're dieting. It helps to maintain your resting metabolic rate, which normally drops by 10 to 20% when you're trying to cut down on your calories through what you what, what you eat. So, yeah, it's, it's good all around to have a mixture of different types of exercise, both aerobic and a little bit of times a week. Excellent. Are you still there, Mike? I think you're... Um, yes, yeah. You went I'm... a little bit... 
sound went a bit squirrely cool i think we're back excellent good okay so look that's really concise from the movement side of things and just being conscious of time because i know this next the little segment is something that we discussed before the call from the nutrition side of things i think the average person is going to hear that and think right carbohydrates um i, I need to start removing anything um that contain uh, lots of carbohydrates sugar um, and especially um, as we've discussed before anything in terms of uh, social media now twitter and some of these things and these uh, high fat low carb diets and, and people following these kind of ketogenic ways of doing things um, for the average person looking at that they they may see that a lot of that noise um, and and a lot of that momentum um, seems to be the way to go so obviously it's brilliant to have you on to have a bit of a discussion about what what do we actually know in terms of the research and 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 what's practical so that people don't go away and start you know implementing these these really intense diets and and falling into kind of quite myopic um points of view when it when it comes to nutrition yeah well when, when you get diagnosed as type 2 diabetic and most people probably kind of assume oh it's it's because my glucose is too high therefore i'm eating too much sugar or something like this but that's not really the case you've been eating too many calories and there you've therefore you've put on weight and body fat and that is the main cause the cause of that extra excess fat accumulation in your body could be due to eating too much sugar but equally it could be eating too, too much fat drinking too much alcohol or more usually actually a combination of all three things mm. um, so it's not just simply cutting out your carbohydrate altogether um, if you're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes uh, the first thing is to start managing it which does mean yes cutting down on your carbohydrate intake but not necessarily cutting it out altogether all you still need carbs for energy for your muscles so that's what allows you to be able to do reasonably intense exercise and um, yeah, you, you don't want to cut out. Uh, you, what you might want to do is, is reduce your intake of sugary foods, things that contain lots of free sugars. So that's things like uh, soft drinks, sports drinks, energy drinks. It's, uh, you know, things like cakes and candy that have got added sugar in them. The processed foods, the sauces that we had, like to add to our meals often are quite high in sugar also in salt as well quite often and uh, cut down on those and focus instead on what we call low glycemic index carbohydrates which is mo mostly your sort of non-starchy uh, vegetable material your your the veg and the fruit in your diet that isn't very starchy so we wouldn't include potatoes or rice or or, or bread in in that sort of thing uh, so you need to cut down on those, but you can eat as much as you like of the uh, the things like the green leafy vegetables, tomatoes, celery, salad ingredients, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, any what I call low density vegetables are good. Things like um, squash and turnip and carrot and all these things, they contain relatively few calories you know, per, per ounce or per gram. So those are the ones to focus on that don't have a high sugar content. Focus on non-tropical fruits, 
which tend, contain, tend to contain much less free sugars than the, the more tropical ones like mango and the like. Um, so you can cut down on your sort of sugar intake that way, which is good. But that's really for managing your blood glucose levels to make sure you don't get, get these continuous large spikes in blood glucose after having a meal that contains you know, these sort of high glycemic index carbohydrates that you need to, to avoid. So there is a case for having uh, low glycemic index carbohydrates, not necessarily cutting out all the carbohydrate in your diet altogether. And then if you're actually wanting to lose weight, the key thing is, of course, you have to reduce your calorie intake. Uh, you don't want to reduce your protein intake because you want to maintain your muscle mass and that helps to maintain your resting metabolic rate. Um, so you've got a choice. You can cut down on carbohydrates or fat. And the sensible thing is to actually cut down on both. Mm. Not, not be selective and just try and cut, cut out carbohydrate. I mean, those low-carbohydrate diets you know, are often referred to as keto diets. They make you go into a, a metabolic condition called ketosis. Because when you don't have any carbohydrate coming into your body, you've only got fat left to use really as a, a major fuel for all of your body tissues. But generally your brain, for example, doesn't like using fat as a fuel. Your blood cells don't like using fat as a fuel. They, they normally rely on blood glucose as their fuel. And instead, you, when you break down your fats, you break down incompletely and you produce things called ketone bodies. Things like acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetone. And your brain can use those as an alternative source of fuel uh, instead of glucose. So it can, you can get by with that, but it also induces acidosis in the blood. It increases your blood fatty acid levels. Those then get converted into fats, which end up as low-density lipoproteins. These are things that cause your blood vessels to clog up with fat. Because you're diabetic and not really able to use glucose normally, you, already have a, you can already have a degree of ketosis and high blood fat levels. I don't see the sense in making that worse by deliberately inducing further ketosis with a very low carbohydrate diet. Mm. It much meant more sense to still eat some carbohydrate, but limit it to the low glycemic index carbohydrates and also cut down on your fat intake. Mm. And you know, get your calories intake down that way and supplement it with exercise to burn more fat. Obviously, the more ex calories you burn with exercise, the less intense your actual dieting has to be. So it makes your dieting easier and losing calories by burning them with exercise doesn't have quite the same impact on your appetite that cutting out food intake does. So you don't feel as hungry if you're doing a combination of exercise and cutting down on your calorie intake rather than trying to do it all through dieting. Virtually all the books I read from other people who write about this, it's all down to diets. You know, there's been this idea that you could go on really very low carb uh, calorie diets, like 800 calories a day. You know, you still want to maintain your protein intake at 
you know, the normal amount, you're going to be having about 400 of those calories in the form of protein. And uh, that leaves you with 400 calories. So if you, you know, you, you, you're going to be on a low carbohydrate and a low fat diet if, you, if you're eating that. It's no point just cutting out all the carbohydrate and leaving the fat. Uh, uh, I'd cut down on both. I think that's the healthiest thing to do as well. We do need some fat in the diet, of course, but it's also important to realise we, we need some carbohydrate to actually help us to do the exercise without feeling fatigued as well. Mm. Yeah, there's some brilliant points there. Just to unpack that um, for the listeners who got the type. So there's no need to just swing to the other side and completely cut down on everything. Maybe just look at some food swaps and things like that. And it's quite easy now to search these low glycemic index foods or as you were saying the vegetables that grow above the ground some of the root vegetables and things so that's the type side of things and then from a total standpoint you know why not like you said go and consider uh, the carbohydrates the fats based foods in your diet and, and look at reducing a combination of both in terms of portion size um, or it's it's adding in that exercise tool isn't it it's not necessarily having to go on a really low calorie diet because you've got that ability to burn extra calories with exercise so if if you're smart and you're considering at the start of the week i'm going to be looking at a bit of an exercise intervention a bit of a nutrition intervention then hopefully uh, you don't you don't have to move really intensely into completely pulling out what you're eating on a daily basis because like you said it's going to change satiety levels um i think that's yeah that's really clear that's that's really brilliant point mike and um yeah just picking up again on the the uh the exercise side of things with the nutrition side of things it it definitely helps people feel good as well because just that i think the the mental health benefits the now people are getting outdoors a little bit more to go and try and do some exercise and it's tough i think anyone listening to this who's thinking right i i need to do some form of even if you don't like the word diet ultimately that's what it is you're you know you're dieting down you're eating less it can feel quite overwhelming so things that you can add in um some of these lower calorie vegetables and fruits like you're talking about um adding in uh, exercise getting outside sunlight feeling good is that it's it's far more um exciting and interesting to think about these approach goals isn't it rather than all of the avoidance goals and i think that ketogenic side of things just really yeah, they're quite clear that, look, these carbohydrates have to go, this is bad, and, and it just doesn't doesn't create a very good relationship with food at the end of the day, does it? No, and it, it becomes very, you know, very difficult to stick to, I think, because you're then eating, you know, a very monotonous diet, essentially. Mm. Um, and if you're on these really low-carbohydrate, low-calorie diets, we know it's, it, it's very difficult to actually stick to that without actual expert help and prompting and motivating you to to keep going with it and the nhs has introduced this program of uh, uh, trying to help people stay on those low calorie diets but what i'm just trying to say it's not the only way yes i, I did go on a really low calorie diet i did a little bit more exercise people don't i don't like that term you know you could call it just physical activity just doing stuff uh, you know going out for a walk doing some gardening and stuff like that even doing your housework it's all doing physical activity moving your muscles and that, that that's what so what you want to be doing to to burn some calories so you know and, and pick things you enjoy doing don't force yourself into doing things you don't want to do 
I've never been really into into running myself. I'm not really into into cycling, but I like playing tennis and I like playing, you know, uh, just going for a walk in the countryside or doing hiking in the hills. That's great, you know, great sort of exercise, enjoyable. You say it lifts your mental well-being as well. Mm. It's good for your immune system as well to do that sort of moderate level of exercise and activities. Um, and as we've seen, you know, with the current COVID pandemic, the people who've had the serious health problems as though the vaccines have been started kicking in, is the people who are actually have these other comor- comorbidities that come associated often with type 2 diabetes and being overweight and inactive. These are the ones who are getting all the problems with COVID because they're already in a what we call a sort of a chronic inflammatory metabolic state. Hmm. And that means you get more inflammation in your lungs when you get infected with this nasty bug that causes those lung infections. Uh, and that's what's been driving people to hospital and killing many people is that uh, you know they, they've had perhaps one could call an inappropriate or unfortunate lifestyle and you know they've suffered the consequences of it as a result of that so just being you know not overweight and doing some physical activity actually protects you against even some of these the consequences of even some of these infectious diseases that are occasionally coming along yeah it's putting that putting that first step forward isn't it and understanding that these things are modifiable in it and if you get the right support and um yeah do do a bit of the kind of background research yourself and and that's why i wanted to get you back onto the show mike obviously it's uh we we stay in touch and we had you know that first conversation around um the 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 book that we spoke about at the start of the show you know performance prevention and things and and yeah like i said it's it's such a useful roadmap for me as a practitioner um and yeah thanks so much for being so generous with your time today and coming on and um if people if people obviously want to grab um beating type 2 diabetes then they can you know links in the show notes and i've also left your um your details of how to stay in touch with you so i think it's your your twitter your facebook your website um and obviously the list to 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 the other things that you've that you've published o- over the years before we go is, is there anything else you want to let the, the listeners know about i know you're you're, you're working on a, a an, another book so um yeah you're uh you're, you know, you're really kind of challenging yourself in the writing side of things. I thought you were meant to be retired, mate, and you're kind of, uh, you're just like churning out more and more, which is exciting. Um, slightly different. Obviously, we've been talking about public health and metabolic health. So what's the, you know, the, what's the one that the listeners can can kind of grab at, um, later on this year and I can get you back on and we can talk about it? Yeah, the, well, the, the next one is, is all about what footballers eat. Essentially, what the professional footballers are um, eat uh, to maximize their match day performance and cope with the, the training that they do and to stay healthy and, uh, and, and perform well in, in, in games. And it's, uh, it's based on a, a recent paper uh, that I was, I was part of, a UEFA-led expert group on nutrition and elite football. But what I've tried to do is to take that kind of sciencey approach and translate it and explain it in detail for you know the ordinary person so probably the biggest target audience for this book on football nutrition would be perhaps the the amateur footballer who wants to be able to emulate what the professionals are doing you know to improve their to improve their own game so it's all about that 
and it's got a bit of humour in it as well. I mean, football's a funny old game, isn't it? So you know, there's a bit of a uh, some of the funniest sides, some of the funniest stories about what I've heard some footballers have eaten, mm. both in the past and even in the uh, in, in the present day. And I've had, got two great performance chefs who regularly cook for professional Premier League footballers. And I've got them to write a whole host of recipes for things like pre-match meals, training day, lunches and dinners, etc. So, Amazing. Yeah, I think it'd be a great resource for the both the amateur and professional player and basically anybody who actually likes the, uh, the, the beautiful game. Fantastic. Football nutrition, that sounds brilliant. Oh, and yeah, and, and uh, the performance chef side of things and the, and the food and like you said, what people can actually put on their plates after reading some of the some of the science to practice information that's superb awesome mike okay um well yeah like i said lovely people everything that you need to stay in touch with mike's in the show notes um and i think yeah it's just important to say like you know mike hasn't paid me to discuss his books or anything like that um they're they're resources that i use most days as as a practitioner and um they're just things that are just laid out in such a clear and concise way and I just I just wanted to kind of bring you know bring some of that to light in the show today some of this information you might have heard about before um, but if, if you haven't and, and it's very new then definitely stay in touch with what Mike's doing and um, I'm, I'm just a big fan of some of these hard copy books I know you can obviously get some of them in PDF form too but it's uh, yeah a little bit of information goes a long way or even just gifting it to someone that you think might benefit from it too so um, please stay in touch with the show um, Mike's great in terms of social media and things. You generally pop up on Twitter and LinkedIn and things like that, don't you, Mike? That's so, right. Yeah. Yes, indeed, I do. Yeah. You're quite, you're quite, um, yeah, uh, really, really around in terms of that side of things, and and that's how we met. I just obviously popped you a comment, so don't be afraid to reach out to him, and um, yeah, we'll speak to you soon, everyone. Thanks.